What a day it's already been. We praise the Lord for that. If you have your Bible here this morning, um, we're going to turn into several different places, but why don't you just go to the back of the book, Revelation. Uh, find Revelation chapter 6 and then uh, leave a finger or a marker also in chapter 13. But a couple of weeks ago, I had the uh, movement of the, of the Lord to kind of change direction and preach about some of the uh, things going on in our world. And we talked last time that I was on this subject, living with confidence in a chaotic world. And we were in Psalm 2, and from that we learned about the sovereignty of Christ and how God sits above the nations. And uh, today I want to talk to you along a similar line, looking at the things going on in our world, these chaotic times. And I want to talk to you about financial signs of the end times. You know, there's a lot of churches that uh, shy away from Bible prophecy. Let it be known that here in this pulpit at Liberty Baptist Church, we will preach the whole counsel of God, uh, especially God's prophetic word, uh, because it brings us so much hope and so much clarity um, during these chaotic times. But if you grew up as I did, playing board games, maybe one of your favorites was Monopoly. And I can remember long days uh, playing Monopoly with my siblings and my cousins. And some of those epic Monopoly games could last for hours on end. And, of course, uh, me being the sore loser that I am, I'd often get mad at whoever won and stay mad for days. It took me a while to get over it. But if you've ever played Monopoly... Uh, then you know it comes with its own supply of play money. And I can remember a few games that really waxed on very long, and we actually ran out of money. And we had to consult the Monopoly rule book for what to do. And if you're ever playing Monopoly and you run out of money, here's what the instruction book says. The bank never goes broke. If the bank runs out of Monopoly money, it may issue as much money as may be needed by writing the desired amounts on any ordinary paper. Now, of course, uh, yeah, it sounds familiar, right? You see where I'm going. Now, of course, we all know what would happen if you were to take some of that Monopoly money and try and spend it out in the real world. Why they look at you up and down as a weirdo and tell you to go jump in a lake. But yet, these are the same rules that our government plays by in managing the U.S. monetary supply. And when you insert more printed dollars into the economy, that makes the value of the existing dollars decrease. And that means the price of everything goes up and voila, that's how you get inflation. In one of his books, uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer was writing about the collapse of the German economy following World War I. The devastation of the Great War coupled with the hefty reparations imposed upon the German people broke their backs financially. And in the 1920s of Germany's Weimar Republic, they resorted to printing so much money, so many German marks, that the currency was basically worthless. Here's some historical photos of that time period. Let's put things into perspective. Before World War I, four German marks had the same purchasing power as one U.S. dollar. But at the worst of hyperinflation in the late 1923, the exchange rate for one U.S. dollar, listen to this, had skyrocketed to four trillion 
German marks. One dollar equaled four trillion German marks and vice versa. In fact, the German mark was so devalued that people stoked their furnaces with stacks of bills. Children would make kites and other creations out of the worthless banknotes. In fact, there's a famous story of a housewife who went into a grocery store uh, with a wheelbarrow full of German marks to make her purchase. She went inside. She left the wheelbarrow outside the store. She was confident that nobody would steal the money. And when it was time for her to pay for her food, she went outside and was surprised to find that somebody had dumped all the money out on the street and run off with the wheelbarrow. (laughs) The wheelbarrow was worth more than the money. Now, I tell you that story to bring you up to where we are today. In the wake of the COVID pandemic and so many reckless policies, Americans are feeling the pain of inflation in ways that we never have before. In fact, economists tell us that the current inflation rates are the highest that they've been in 40 years, and it will probably get worse before it gets better. I was looking at a Yahoo Finance article. They gave some specific numbers about the inflation report so far. Used cars this year up 40.5%. Gas up 40%. Meat up 18%. According to the Labor Department, the energy prices overall have gone up a whopping 27% since last year. And the list goes on and on. And so the point of it is that you and I will have less purchasing power this year. Now you say, preacher, where are you going with all this? I didn't come to church to hear an economics lecture. And no, you didn't. But I want you to know that the Bible has an incredible amount of wisdom about money. In fact, listen to this. Scholars have counted 2,350 verses in the Bible on the subject of money. Do you know that's more than the topics of faith and prayer combined? Listen to this. 15% of Jesus' words were about money. He preached more on money than he did on heaven and hell. Now you may ask yourself, why is that? Why does the Bible take so much time to teach on the subject of money. Well, number one, I would say, because money commands much of our lives, doesn't it? The earning of it, the saving of it, the spending of it, the managing, the investing. Our lives are consumed by it in a lot of ways. But then number two, I would say that the Bible speaks so much about money because it, more than any other thing, any other resource, can have a God-like influence over our lives. In fact, Jesus said that you can't worship two masters you'll either serve mammon or you'll serve god so money can more than any other thing can become an idol in people's lives now when it comes to bible prophecy the bible predicts and the bible foretells that money will have a huge impact on the shaping of lives during the upcoming end time period or the tribulation as you and i know it And considering all of the economic chaos that we are living in right now, I want to underscore a few of these economic trends that the Bible warns us to look out for as we approach the end times. What are the financial signs that indicate that the final act of God's divine drama is about to begin? And you'll be surprised because a lot of the things that you and I are seeing right now and the pain that you and I are feeling in our wallet is actually lining up very closely with the end times scenario 
And if the tribulation is close, that means, child of God, that the rapture is even closer. And that means the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? So number one, let's talk about the financial signs of the end times. There are three of them that I want to walk you through this morning. The first is what I would call an addiction to money. An addiction to money. Notice what Paul writes to his young preaching protege, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Notice the next phrase, lovers of of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and he continues beyond that. So he says here, in the, the days just prior to the return of Christ, greed will be man's creed. Gold will be their God. The almighty dollar will be the absolute deity. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this. He says, while other cultures consider plagues, pestilences and famine the worst that could be feared our high income societies consider one thing worse the destruction of wealth our ultimate definition of disaster is a materialistic one fixated as it is on the ups and downs of financial assets home prices unemployment rates and the price of fuel is he not preaching the truth on that or what it's a telling sign about our society and how addicted we are to money and how much money is a God to us when we think the worst thing that could ever happen to us is if the stock market has a bad day. Now Jesus explained that in the last days, men's hearts will be like the citizens of Sodom who had a quote-unquote business-as-usual attitude even though God's wrath was about to fall upon them. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 17, talking there from the Olivet Discourse. He says, verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, watch this, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that in the days leading up to his return, that people are just going to be going about the regular routine of their life, not giving scant thought to eternity or God's judgment or what might happen. They're going to be more concerned with making a dollar than they will be about preparing for the coming of Christ. I read a story, a true story that goes back to the days of the Klondike Gold Rush in the 1890s. There's a, some of those gold rushers who went up to Alaska to find their fame and fortune. But the story goes that a couple of city slicker brothers had got bit by the gold fever, and so they headed deep into the Alaskan wilderness looking to strike a fortune. But then the brothers went missing. Their family had become concerned, and they, so they sent out a search party to try and find these boys. They discovered the brothers in what eventually appeared to be an abandoned cabin high in the mountains. But when the search party arrived and they opened the front door, they were stunned to see the frozen corpses of these two brothers sitting at a table. And on the table were, were several bags of gold dust that they had mined out of the earth. And then a confession was scribbled down on a single piece of paper. And here's what it said. 
the more gold we found, the greedier we got. We spent more time digging than preparing for the first blizzard. And what started as a blessing has become a curse. Snowed in and starving. What shall it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And friend, that's exactly the gist of what Jesus is saying there in that prophetic passage of Luke 17. There are some who live by the mentality, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can and poison the rest. And that, my friend, is the addiction to money that the Bible says will eat up our attention and our action if we're not careful. And you know, modern man spends more time pursuing wealth than he does preparing for eternity. And the Bible says that there is a prophetic storm coming, right? And that we must have our priorities in order. And for those who are not ready for the return of the Lord, the riches of this world will not be able to bargain with God, not be able to buy them a second chance. The Bible says in Proverbs 11 and verse 4 that riches profiteth not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death, and that righteousness is only available through God's sinless Son who died on the cross for our sins. And so the Bible says that one of the signs of the end financially is an addiction to money. But then also the Bible talks about what I would call an acceleration of inequality. An acceleration of inequality. Remember I told you to flip over to the book of Revelation. We'll go to chapter 6. By the way, we don't have to be afraid of the book of Revelation. I've heard so many Christians say, Oh, I don't read the book of Revelation because I'm, I just don't understand it. Or uh, I, I have trouble with just getting through it. It's so symbolic and so confusing. Listen, the, the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with a blessing in the very prologue of it. To him who reads, he shall be blessed. By the way, Satan doesn't want you to read the book of Revelation because it's the book which predicts his defeat and doom. He doesn't want you to have that assurance, that joy, that peace, and that blessing. But in Revelation 6, it contains the famous prophecy of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard that before. Now here's the vision. John sees four riders coming out and they ride across the earth. Each rider is symbolic of a judgment that God will unleash upon the world during those last seven years of history. Jesus is holding in His hand the title deed of the earth. The title deed is sealed with seven seals. Each time Jesus pops a seal on that scroll, a new judgment is unleashed on the earth. That's why Revelation 6 is called the seven seal judgment. But those first four of that seven give us these horsemen of the apocalypse. The first horseman that is introduced is a mysterious rider. That's the Antichrist, the mysterious conqueror. The second horseman speaks of military conflicts. The third rider then brings upon meager crops. And the fourth, massive casualties. So the Antichrist, world wars, famine and inflation, disease and death. Those are the first four judgments. Kind of sounds a lot like 2022, don't it? <laughs> but we're not there yet. But here's what I want you to see. That third rider, meager crops, famine and inflation. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 6, starting in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. 
and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wine for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. Now indeed, there are symbols in this text that we do need to understand. But the black horse is symbolic, we are told, of famine. In fact, Jesus refers to this. Matthew 24 and verse 7 in his Olivet Discourse, he talks about famines coming upon the earth. So that corresponds to here. But what does John mean when he talks about the writer having those scales and the denarius and food being scarce? Well, what he's telling us here is that a daily ration of food for an ancient citizen, that's a quart of wheat. The denarius was the Roman coin that was equal to a day's wage for an average worker. And so what this passage is teaching us is that during the tribulation period, a man will have to work all day just to get enough food to feed himself. And then it says that there will be great inequality and there will be a double whammy of food shortage and inflation. It's interesting that what is going on, and also tragic what's going on in the Ukraine right now. But do you know that world uh, experts are telling us uh, that if this conflict doesn't end soon, that there could be a great famine that goes across the earth because of that war. You see, you need to understand that Ukraine is called the breadbasket of Europe. 15% of the world's corn supply comes from Ukraine. 12% of the world's wheat supply comes from Ukraine. 30% of the world's barley comes from that country. And so what experts are saying is that uh, the current war will put a strain on food and the supply chain, and it could lead to big famines across our world. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to show you how these birth pains are happening right now, leading up to the end time. Now, our text in Revelation 6 also says, don't touch the oil and the wine. That's not talking about petroleum. It didn't exist in John's day. It's talking about olive oil and drinking wine. Those will be exempted. So what that text is saying is that oil and wine, those are considered the luxury items. Those are considered the rich man's fare in John's day. And so what this text, if you take it as a whole, what this prophecy is saying is that the, the food for the average man, the poor person, is going to be severely restricted, but the luxuries of the wealthy and the well-to-do will remain untouched. In other words, you've heard it before, the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer and the gap between rich and poor will grow and grow and grow as we see the haves and the have-nots. We already see this happening today, don't we? Listen to these amazing numbers. The Global Wealth Report indicates, listen to this, that 1% of the world's population owns 44% of the world's wealth. That 1%. The Elon Musks of the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezos of the world, that 1% owns 44% of the world's wealth. And listen to this, in the past 40 years, the wages of average workers have risen about 11% while, what about the CEOs? Have risen a shocking 1,000%. 1,000%. 
And when you run the comparison today, a CEO earns 278 times what their employees do in a given year. Hello, Revelation 6, we're right there. We all saw what COVID did to our economies and our, our governments. How COVID was so politicized and weaponized and how governments use that as an opportunity to overreach into your life and my life and try and restrict you and take away your freedom and put pressure on the church. We lived through all that and we saw it. COVID ended up becoming a huge power grab and a huge transfer of wealth. This is what they won't tell you on the 6 o'clock news, by the way. But listen to this. While millions of Americans lost their jobs or had their businesses shut down, do you know that the net worth of billionaires actually rose 35% from $3.4 trillion in 2020 to $4.6 trillion in 2021? Hello, it's birth pains. It's Revelation 6 right here at the doorstep, friend. Exactly what God predicted. See, the disparity of wealth seen in Revelation 6 is being set up right now. The gap in the inequality, the addiction to money. But then you know what else? The last sign that I want you to see this morning is an acceptance of the Antichrist. An acceptance of the Antichrist. If you got your Bible, flip over to Revelation 13. I want to show you this. The Bible predicts a coming world leader who will control the world. One man, Satan's CEO, he will rule the world religiously, politically, and economically. He goes by several different aliases in the scripture. He's known as the man of sin, the son of perdition. You know him best as the Antichrist. John calls him, though, in Revelation 13, the beast. And we read here about his mark called the mark of the beast, which he will impose upon people, citizens of the tribulation, and force them to take his mark or else paralyze them financially. If you don't take the beast's mark, you don't have money to buy or sell. And you starve to death. It's very simple. But look what the Bible talks about, Revelation 13, 16 and 17. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And if you keep reading, you find out that's 666. Now, if you're reading this passage 30 years ago, you read that and you think, man, that's really hard to believe. How could one man exert so much control over people's lives that he could basically shut them down from even going to the store and buying anything? But oh, how technology has sped up and how modern advancements in our technology and in the financial sector has made this prophecy so believable today. You know why? Because we are an increasingly cashless society. I can go through a whole week and not ever pull out a dollar bill or a coin. I can do it all digitally. I can do it on my computer, on my phone. I can use a card. And what this has done is it means that most of our money is now ones and zeros in a computer. And all it takes is one man who has enough power, influence, and control to get behind that computer. And now he has the faucet to shut off or turn on the money flow in my life. 
And by the way, in case you think that is so far-fetched, just look at what happened a couple of weeks ago in Canada when the truckers were doing their rally, their freedom uh, protests about all the government overreach and the, the mandates and all the, the uh, fascism and all of that going on in the country. Do you know how the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, shut all that down? Well, he threatened to freeze the bank accounts of all the protesters. There's the headline, Justin Trudeau to crack down on Canada truckers' bank accounts. So you think it sounds, uh, oh, this is so unbelievable, but it just happened two weeks ago. We're living in that kind of world where we see the signs of the end so apparent. And today it's a cinch to marry a person's financial records to a microchip and place it in their body. You say, preacher, you're just trying to scare people. No. Reality check. This is already happening in our world. The mark of the beast. I don't know what it will be. It could be a tattoo. It could be something else. It could be, with today's technology, a microchip about the size of a grain of rice inserted into somebody's body. And you say, that's crazy. It's already happening. Did you know that there are companies... One of them is in Wisconsin called Three Square. It's a technology com company. And another one in Sweden called Biohacks, where in order to work there, you have to be chipped. You're chipped as an employee, and that chip contains every piece of information they need. It gets you in the door. It has your bank account on it. And anytime you make a purchase in the cafeteria, it's deducted from there. Friend, I'm telling you, it's already here. Meanwhile, Amazon, we all love the convenience of Amazon Prime. Bless God, my wife is the Amazon queen. If something doesn't show up at our house, the Amazon driver comes and checks on us. Hey, you didn't order anything yesterday. Is something wrong? You sick? Hey, yeah, you live in the same world I do. Yeah. Listen to what Amazon recently rolled out. Amazon One. Here's a picture of it. A device, they explain this on their website, a device that is fast, convenient, contactless way for people to use their palm to make everyday purchases. We're just one step away from Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. And notice it's the frog in the pot of water. Gradually getting people used to it to the point to where when it's finally implemented, it's not going to be that big of an adjustment for them. You see where we are, friends? About Elon Musk, he's the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla. You know, he's been working on something called Neuralink. It's a device, listen, that can be implanted in the brain. And the goal is to seamlessly marry humans with computers. See, you're just one degree removed from it right now with a smartphone in your palm. Elon Musk says, let's remove that. Let's just put the technology in your head. I know this sounds science fiction. I know it sounds fringe and crazy. And I know I may sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. But this is out there. Musk said this. Neuralink will enable anyone to have superhuman cognition. Neuralink, could, he says he can start implanting chips in human brains later this year. It's crazy where we are. We are on the cutting edge of having all the technology that the Antichrist and the false prophet need to wire this world together for their evil purposes. And the world stage, my friend, is being set for the final act of God's divine drama to begin. I believe that in any time soon the curtain could go up. 
God already has the, the players in place, the props are in place, and at any moment the trumpet could be sounded and the rapture could take place and this final act of God's divine drama could begin. And friend, the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, am I ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, because it's not just the financial signs uh, that make me stand up on the tiptoes and look out on this world with excitement. It's not just the things going on in technology. I'm looking at all the other prophetic signs that the Bible talks about. The moral decay happening all around us. The fact that uh, ev everybody's full of hatred and division today. Uh, that we can't decide uh, among our children whether they should be boys or girls. All the transgenderism confusion. I'm talking about Israel being safe in their land and and being wealthy and exactly where God said they would be as the end times approach. I'm talking also about the apostasy in the church. How the church is looking more and more every day like lukewarm Laodicea. Friend, I'm talking to you about the rise of governments across our world who are growingly authoritarian and will reach down into your life and change your freedom and take things away. I'm talking about America's decline in the world as a superpower. And as I look about all these things happening in our world, I could hang my head in despair. I could give in to fear. Oh, but friend, I've got a book. I've got a prophecy. I've got Jesus Christ. I can open God's prophetic word and be reminded, hey, it ain't all out of control. All the pieces are falling into place just like I said they would, Brother Derek. And God reminds me, me as I look into his prophetic word this isn't a time to be scared this is a time to be prepared this isn't a time to give in to fear this is a time to be full of hope because my Jesus is on the balcony of heaven and I believe that at any time the word could be given and you and I could go home you see, friend, the darkness of this world, as it grows more and more dim here, it should make us long to be with Him. Hey, there's no answers down here. There's no hope down here. I don't have any faith in the governments of this world or in the economic institutions of this world. I don't think they'll find an end to the problems that face us or to be able to give world peace or even deal with the, the so-called climate crisis that we're living in. Somebody asked me, Brother Derek, do you believe in global warming? I said, yes, sir, I do. Second Peter chapter 3, the earth will be dissolved by fire when Jesus Christ makes it new once again. You see, friend, it's coming. These are perilous times. These are dangerous hours. But, oh, friend, these are also exciting times because I know enough of the book. I've read the signs. I've spent time with the Savior. And He's reminded me, hey, be ready. Be instant in season and out because I'm collecting a bride. My word's about to be fulfilled. And you get to be on a privileged platform to see the Word of God fulfilled right before your very eyes. You see, friend, you need to be reminded this morning by the prophetic word of God, Joe Biden is not in control. Vladimir Putin is not calling the shots. Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum are not at the steering wheel. Jesus Christ is. He's the one governing. He's the one ruling. They're just following unknowingly the script that he's already written in advance. And friend, that brings me joy. That brings me peace. That brings me assurance this morning. Because my Bible says he sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs in derision at the nations raging. You see, friend, 
I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Amen. The financial signs of the end times. But I want to leave you number two with this today as we close. Financial strategies for the present time. We see what's going on in our world, and it's definitely not getting better. So how do we now live in light of all of this? Well, very quickly, I want to give you three strategies as we close today. What do I do to be confident in a chaotic world? The Bible paints a grim picture of a future financial for the ungodly, but it also gives us several strategies for how our wealth should be used to advance the gospel and glorify God. Yes, I'm going to preach on money. And yes, some of you may get upset with me, but I didn't write this. And you know what? If you get upset at the preacher preaching on money, maybe it's become an idol in your life. We don't have a giving problem here. But I know how it is. Anytime the preacher preaches on money, somebody's going to reach out to him Monday morning. Preacher, I didn't like that message that you preached the other day. That's okay. Because I don't answer to you or anybody else. I answer to Jesus Christ. But here's what the Bible says. Listen, the Bible presents money as neither good nor evil. It's a tool and a test. We can use money as a tool to accomplish godly goals. And it's also a test to determine if we are wrongly trusting in money as an idol. God cares how we steward the resources He had entrusted to us. So are we being faithful or are we being wasteful? Here are the financial strategies. And these are true at any time. First one is this. Decide to conquer debt. Proverbs 22 and verse 7. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Do you know that according to the numbers, the average American carries $6,194 in credit card debt. The average student loan debt is $39,000. And the average overall household debt is $155,600. That's all debt. Somebody said, I think it was my daddy, he said, we sing a different song than Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. <laughs> right? Now, I realize, hey, I live in the same world you do. Some debt is unavoidable. Right? But when uncontrolled spending gets in the way of being generous toward God, then it becomes a sin problem. If you have to make the choice, am I going to make my car payment or am I going to give to God, you, you're, in a, you're in a dangerous place. If we are in debt because we are pursuing worldly riches and unnecessary possessions, then we have made ourselves slaves, as the Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 7. Money is a good servant, but it is a poor master. And anybody that knows, if you ever had debt hanging over you, it owns you, doesn't it? It's hard to get a good night's rest. It's hard to find peace because you're working all the time trying to put bread in those open mouths and those open hands. And I would strongly encourage every Christian to do all that they can to eliminate as much debt as possible so that you can be rich towards God. 
so that your money doesn't go to creditors, but you can use it to bless people. You can use it to love people. And you can use it to build the kingdom of God. Decide to conquer debt. Then this, determine to be content. Determine to be content. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. I remember Adrian Rogers, before he went on to be with the Lord, hearing him preaching one day about an airline pilot. Every time he flew over the same route, he'd look out his window down at the earth as he was flying over the Appalachian Mountains and and he'd look down longingly over this one little patch of, of grass. And the, the co-pilot asked him one day, hey, hey, why is it that every time we go over this part of the country, you always look down there? What's so interesting about that spot? Here's what the pilot said. He said, look down there, you see that river? The co-pilot said, yeah. He said, when I was a little boy, I used to sit down on the edge of that river on a log, and I used to fish. And as a little boy... I would sit up there and I'd watch the planes go overhead and I wish that I could be a pilot one day being up there. He said, and now I am a pilot and all I can do is look down there and wish I was down there by the river fishing. <laughs> Isn't that the problem of contentment? The grass is always greener on the other side, ain't it, Brother Stan? And then when you get there, you find out that it's green because it's over an open sewage system. It's not as good as you think it is. And contentment is the one secret treasure of the Christian life that I think Paul figured out. He says it's a choice right here. I've decided to be content. And each day we decide if we're going to have an ungrateful spirit or an attitude of gratitude. You see, contentment makes a poor man rich, but discontentment makes a rich man poor. And friend... Contentment comes with a healthy perspective. If I'm upset because I'm coveting after the things I don't have rather than being content over the things that God has blessed me with, then my perspective is out of whack. I don't necessarily need a bigger truck, a finer home, better clothes, or you fill in the blank. Paul says here, if you've got the basic necessities of life and you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you're blessed. Somebody say amen in the house of God. And at the root of contentment is our view of the goodness of God. You see, at the end of the day, I should count my blessings and thank God for His goodness and look and say, Lord, I don't need any other thing because what you have provided is good enough. You already gave me a wife and a roof over my head and healthy children and food and clothes on my back. And most of all, Lord, you gave me your son, Jesus Christ, and you promised me a home in heaven. Lord, you've been more than good to me. I don't need another blessing. I've already been blessed beyond what I think or could deserve. You see, friend, most of our financial woes and happiness can be remedied if we learn how to be content in Christ so determined to be content decide to get out of debt and then lastly I know I'm running out of time but listen to this donate or devote to heavenly treasure listen to what Jesus says in his sermon on the mount Matthew 6 19 and 21 do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys nor where thieves can break in and steal. You know, Jesus taught some incredible truth right here that we need to latch on to. Here it is. You're either moving toward your treasure or you're moving away from your treasure. Right? You're either looking forward to what lies over the horizon or you're leaving behind everything that you may have invested here on the earth. And you may not be able to take it with you, but you know what Jesus says you can do? You can send it ahead. That's why He says lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You say, well, what is He talking about? Well, listen. That's the time and the talent and the treasure, the money, that God entrusts to us here on earth. You know what that is? That's investment capital. And every day that I give up, I have the opportunity to buy up some shares in God's heavenly kingdom by investing in one of only two things that lasts throughout death and eternity. You know what those are? The Word of God and the souls of men and women. And so when I invest in those things, I'm laying up treasure in heaven. And we should use our affluence for godly influence. And when we give to the church, or you give to missions, or you give to gospel ministries, those dollars, that time, that energy, that influence, it goes to see souls saved. And somebody in heaven may walk up to you and say, let me shake your hand. You don't know me. I'm so and so from this part of the earth. But because you gave to the kingdom of God, you were able to send a missionary to me. And I'm here today because you sacrificed and you gave. And I just want to wrap my arms around you and thank you and hug you in Jesus' name. Friend, that's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. That one day a boy or a girl who was in your Sunday school class that you taught Sunday school leader is in, ends up in glory and, and thanks you for the investment that you made in their life. That some soul who you didn't even know was impacted by your life or your, or your ministry or your influence winds up walking the streets of gold and finds you and says, I just want to thank you for giving to the Lord. Oh friend, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by His nail-scarred hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. You see, friends, I've got more invested on the other side than I do on this side. And everything changes when your perspective is on eternity and you realize, you know what? I feel the pull of that land of cloudless day. I feel the pull of eternity more than I do the pull of this old world. You say, well, what do you have on the other side? I thought you'd never ask. Hey, friend, my residence is in heaven. My relationships are awaiting me in heaven. My resurrection body is in heaven. And I'm getting older and I can feel it after a basketball game. I'm looking forward to that resurrection body. My reward is in heaven to cast a crown at Jesus' feet and hear Him say, Well done good and faithful servant and most of all my redeemer is in heaven and I'm looking forward to falling at his feet and saying Jesus why oh why did you die for a sinner like me oh friend the longer I serve Christ I feel that pull of eternity 
That's what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wasn't losing nothing on this side. You see, friend, when eternity begins, I'll be richer than I've ever been. I'll have a home beside the crystal sea that no man can take away. I'll be richer than ever. I'll be freer than ever, free from the presence of sin and the power of sin. I'll be more alive than ever. Oh, you don't have to get me excited about heaven, friend. So what should we do? Randy Alcorn gives this brilliant illustration in his book. He says, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now you suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win and the end of the war is imminent. What should you do with your Confederate money? Or in this case, your U.S. dollars. He said, if you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency. The only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Here's the application. As a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will soon become worthless when Christ comes or you die, whichever happens first. And either event can happen at any time. He said Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He instructs us to transfer funds from earth to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and is soon coming forever. So the question you've got to ask yourself as you get to the end of this message is, where is my real treasure? It's all going to end up being burned up one day. And when Christ returns, am I going to be an ultimate or am I going to be an ultimate loser? You see, the hope of the gospel is not only that we will escape the wrath to come, but that we will receive the inheritance that comes from being a child of God. Entrance into eternity with Christ Jesus forever are you ready are you prepared as our musicians are coming we're thinking about what God would have us to do today how have we been steward in our lives not just our money that's a part of it but everything that God has entrusted to us are we managing well are we investing in God's kingdom what will he say about our lives when we stand before him one day did we waste those resources? That's something for you to think about. But you know what? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's the first thing you have to get rectified. And I pray today that as you heard this message, something rang true in your heart. And our altar is going to be open as Brother Preston is getting ready to lead us. If you need to come forward for any reason, for prayer or for recommitment or just to be encouraged, to receive Christ for baptism, to join the church, whatever the need is today, this is a chance for you to act upon what you've heard.